The sermon that I'm going to share with you today is an exposition of Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 2. This message first came to my attention when I heard the testimony of a man who had been converted to Christianity after being raised in a cult. He said that God had used this sermon to expose the error of his religion, which claimed to be Christian, and to cause him to understand and believe the true gospel. I pray that this message will be a blessing to each of you today. This sermon was preached by Pastor Charles Spurgeon, April 18th of 1880. And the passage is this. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, Lord, we want it to be an act of worship to you. We want it to be your voice that is heard today. And Father, we uh, just desire that by your Holy Spirit, you will help us to hear you and to understand the message you have for us today. Father, would you use it to shape our hearts to be more like you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The idea of salvation by merit of one's own works is exceedingly insinuating. It matters not how often it is refuted, it asserts itself again and again. And when it gains the least foothold, it soon makes great advances. For that reason, Paul, who was determined to exterminate it, opposed everything which represented it. He was determined not to, not to permit the thin edge of the wedge to be introduced into the church, for well he knew that willing hands would soon be driving it home. So when Peter sided with the Judaizing party and seemed to favor those who demanded that the Gentiles should be circumcised, our brave apostle withstood him publicly and face to face. He fought always for salvation by grace through faith and contended strenuously against all thought of righteousness by obedience to the precepts of the ceremonial or moral law. No one could be more explicit than he upon the doctrine that we are not justified or saved by works in any degree, but solely by the grace of God. His trumpet gave, gave forth no uncertain sound, but gave forth a clear note. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Grace meant grace with him, and he could not endure any tampering with the matter, or any frittering away of its meaning. So appealing and attractive is the doctrine of legal righteousness, that the only way to deal with it is Paul's way, to stamp it out, cry war to the knife against it, and never yield to it. But remember the Apostle's firmness and how, stout, and how stoutly he held his ground when he said, We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The error of salvation by works is readily understood and accepted by men. You will constantly hear it stated as a self-evident truth and proven to be true on account of its supposed practical usefulness. While the gospel doctrine of salvation by faith is loudly opposed and accused of evil consequences, it is affirmed that if we preach salvation by good works, we shall encourage virtue, and so it might seem in theory. But history proves by many instances that as a matter of fact, where such doctrine has been preached, virtue has become uncommon, and that in the same way, as the merit of works has been preached, morality has gone down. On the other hand, where justification by faith has been preached, conversions have followed, and purity of life has been produced in even the worst of men. Those who lead godly and gracious lives are ready to confess that the cause of their strong desire for holiness lies in their faith in Christ Jesus. But where will you meet with a devout and upright man who glories in his own works? Self-righteousness is so natural to our fallen humanity 
Hence, it is the essence of all false religions. Be they what they may, they all agree in seeking salvation by our own deeds. He who worships his idols will torture his body, will fast, will perform long pilgrimages, and do or endure anything in order to merit salvation. The Roman Church holds up continually before the eyes of its followers the prize to be earned by self-denial, by penance, by prayers, or by sacraments, or by some other performances of man. Go where you may, the natural, natural religion of fallen man is salvation by his own merits. An old divine has said well, Every man is born a heretic on this point, and he naturally gravitates toward this heresy in one form or another. Self-salvation, either by his personal worthiness or by his repentance or by his determination, is a hope ingrained in human nature and very hard to remove. This foolishness is bound up in the heart of every child, and who shall get it out of him? This wrong idea arises partly from ignorance, for men are ignorant of the law of God and of what holiness really is. If they knew that evil thought is breaking the law, and that the law once broken in any point is altogether violated, they would be at once convinced that there can be no righteousness by the law to those who have already broken it. They are also in great ignorance concerning themselves, for those very persons who talk about self-righteousness are, as a rule, openly chargeable with fault. And if not, were they to sit down and really look at their lives, they would soon see that even the best of their works contains such impurity of motive beforehand and such pride and self-congratulations after that they would see the appalling shine taken off from all their performances and they would be utterly ashamed of them. Nor is it ignorance alone which leads men to self-righteousness. They are also deceived by pride. Man cannot stand to be saved on the footing of mercy. He loves not to plead guilty and throw himself on the favor of the great king. He cannot stand to be treated as a beggar and blessed as a matter of charity. He desires to have a finger in his own salvation and to claim at least a little credit for it. Proud man will not have heaven itself upon terms of grace. But so long as he can, he sets up one plea after another and holds to his own righteousness as if it were his life. This self-confidence also arises from wicked unbelief, for through his self-conceit men will not believe God. Nothing is more plainly revealed in Scripture than this, that by the works of the law shall no man be justified. Yet men, in some shape or other, stick to the hope of legal righteousness. They will have it that they must prepare for grace, or assist mercy, or in some degree deserve eternal life. They prefer their own flattering prejudices to the declaration of the heart-searching God. The testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning the deceitfulness of the heart is cast aside, and the declaration of God that there is none that does good, no, not one, is altogether denied. Is this not a great evil? Self-righteousness is also much promoted by the almost universal spirit of shallow thoughtfulness, thoughtlessness, which is now so common in our culture. Only while men fail to think seriously and to examine their behavior and the real reasons they do what they do, can they continue to believe that they have personal merit before God. He who comes to serious thought and begins to understand the character of God before whom the heavens are not pure, and the angels are charged with sin. He, I say, that comes to serious thought and beholds a true vision of God, abhors himself in dust and ashes, and is forever silenced as to any thought of self-justification. It is because we do not seriously examine our condition that we think ourselves rich and increased in goods. A man may pretend that he is prospering in business, and yet he may be going broke. If he does not face his books and take stock, he may be living in a fool's paradise, spending, spending largely when on the verge of bankruptcy. Many think well of themselves because they never think seriously. They do not look below the surface, and hence they are deceived by appearances. 
The most troublesome business to, any, to many men is thought. And the last thing they will do is to weigh their actions and test their motives or ponder their ways to see whether things be right with them. Self-righteousness being supported by ignorance, by pride, by unbelief, and by the natural superficiality of the human mind is strongly entrenched and cannot be readily driven out of men. Yet yet self-righteousness is self-evidently evil, for it makes light of sin. It talks of merit in the case of one who has already broken God's law, and it boasts of excellence in the case of one who is, oh, sorry, it, and it boasts of excellence in reference to a fallen and depraved creature. It foolishly speaks of little faults, small failures, and slight omissions, and so makes sin to be a slight and inconsequential error that could readily be overlooked. Not so faith in God, for though it recognizes pardon, Yet that pardon is seen to come in a way which proves sin to be exceedingly sinful. On the other hand, the doctrine of salvation by works has not a word of comfort in it for the fallen. It gives to the elder son all that his proud heart can claim. But for the prodigal, it has no welcome. The law has no invitation for the sinner, for it knows nothing of mercy. If salvation be by the works of the law, what has become of the guilty and the fallen and the abandoned? By what hope can these be recalled? This unmerciful doctrine bars the door of hope and hands over the lost ones to the executioner in order that the proud Pharisee may air his boastful righteousness and thank God that he is not like other men are. It is this intense selfishness It is the intense selfishness of this doctrine which condemns it as an evil thing. It naturally exalts itself. If a man conceives that he will be saved by his own works, he thinks himself somewhat good and glories in the dignity of human nature. When he has been attentive to religious exercises, he pats himself on the back and feels that he deserves well with his maker. He goes home to repeat his prayers, and ere he falls asleep, He wonders how he can have grown to be so good and so much superior to those around him. When he walks abroad, he feels as if he dwelt apart in native excellence, a person much distinguished from the vulgar herd, a being to whom to know is to admire. All the while, he considers himself to be very humble and is often amazed at his own condescension. What is this but a most hateful spirit? God who seeth the heart loathes it. He will accept the humble and the contrite, but he puts far from him those who glory in themselves. Indeed, my brethren, what have we to glory in? Is not every boast a lie? What is this selfhood but a peacock feather, fit only for the cap of a fool? May God deliver us from this exalting self. And yet we cannot be delivered from so doing if we hold in any degree the doctrine of salvation by our own good works. At this time, I desire to shoot at the very heart of that soul-destroying doctrine, while I show you in the first place that two great crimes are contained in the idea of self-justification. And when I have brought forth that indictment, it will be my delight to assert that true believer does not fall into these crimes. May God, the Holy Spirit, help us while meditating upon this important theme. First then, two great crimes are contained in self-righteousness. These most serious crimes are frustrating the grace of God and making Christ to have died for no good reason without accomplishing his purpose. The first is the frustration of God. The word here translated frustrate means to make void, to reject, to refuse, to regard as needless. Now he that hopes to be saved by his own righteousness rejects the grace or free offer of God unless it has and regards it as useless and in that sense frustrates it. It is clear first that if righteousness comes by the law, the grace of God is no longer required. If we can be saved by our own merits, we need justice, but we certainly don't need mercy. If we can keep the law and claim to be accepted as a matter of debt, it is plain that we need not plead for forgiveness 
or seek desperately for mercy. Grace is an unnecessary thing where merit can be proved. A man who can go into court with a clear case and a bold countenance asks not for mercy of the judge and offers of mercy to him would insult him. Give me justice, he says. Give me my rights. And he stands up for them as any brave Canadian should do. It is only when a man feels that the law condemns him that he puts himself in a plea for mercy. Nobody ever dreamed of recommending an innocent man to mercy. I say then that the man who believes that by keeping the law or by practicing ceremonies or undergoing religious performances, he can make himself acceptable before God, most decidedly puts the grace of God to one side as an unnecessary thing as far as he is concerned. It is, is it not clearly so, and is not this a crimson crime, this frustration of the grace of God? Next, he makes the grace of God to be at, at least a secondary thing which is only a lower degree of the same error. Many think that they are to merit as much as they can by their own works, and then the grace of God will make up the rest. The theory seems to be that we are to keep the law as far as we can, and this imperfect obedience is to stand good as a sort of necessary addition, a penny to be added to God's dollar, or a dime according as man judges his own excellence. And then, what is required over and above our own hard-earned righteousness, the grace of God will supply. In short, the plan is every man is his own savior, and Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ and his grace only make up for our slight deficiencies. Whether man can see it or not, this mixture of law and grace is most dishonoring to the salvation of Jesus Christ. It makes the savior's work to be incomplete. Though on the cross he cried, it is finished, yet it even treats it as utterly ineffectual, since it appears to to be insufficient until man's work is added to it. According to this notion, we are redeemed as much by our own doings as by the ransom price of Jesus' blood. And man and Christ go shares, both in the work and in the glory. This is an intense form of arrogant treason against the majesty of divine mercy, a capital crime which will condemn all who continue in it. May God deliver us from, this in, from insulting the throne of grace by bringing a purchase price in our hand as if we could deserve such peerless gifts of love. More than that, he who trusts in himself, his feelings, his works, his prayers, or anything except the grace of God, virtually gives up trusting in the grace of God altogether. For be it known to you that God's grace will never share work with man's merit. As oil will not combine with water, so neither will human merit and heavenly mercy mix together. The apostle says in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, If by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be by works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You either have salvation wholly because you deserve it or wholly because God graciously bestows it, though you do not deserve it. You must receive salvation at the Lord's hand, either as a debt or as a charity. There can be no mingling of the ideas. That which is a pure donation of favor cannot also be a reward of personal deserving. A combination of the two principles of law and grace is utterly impossible. Trust in our own works in any degree effectually shuts us out from all hope of salvation by grace, and so it frustrates the grace of God. This is another form of this crime, that when men preach up human doings, sufferings, feelings, or emotions as a ground of salvation, they take off the sinner from confidence in Christ. For as long as a man can maintain any hope in himself, he will never look to the Redeemer alone. We may preach forever and ever, but as long as there remains latent in anyone a hope that he can effectually clear himself from sin and win the favor of God by his own works, that man will never accept the proclamation of free pardon through the blood of Christ. We know that we cannot frustrate the grace of God. It will have its way. 
and the eternal purpose shall be fulfilled. But as the tendency of all teaching, which mixes up works with grace, it is to take men off from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Its tendency is to frustrate the grace of God, and every act is to be judged by its tendency, even if the Lord's divine power prevents it working its own natural result. No man can lay another foundation than that which is laid, but inasmuch as they try to do so, they are guilty of despising the foundation of God, as much as those builders of the olden time who rejected Jesus, the stone which God had chosen to be the cornerstone. May the grace of God keep us from such crime as this, lest the blood of other men's souls should be on our hands. This hoping to be saved by our own righteousness robs God of his glory. It is good as said, we want no grace, we need no free favor. It reads of the new covenant with infinite love, which infinite love has made, but by clinging to the old covenant, it puts dishonor upon it. In its heart it murmurs, what need of this covenant of grace? The covenant of works answers every purpose for us. It reads of the great gift of the grace in the person of Jesus Christ, and it causes people to reject it by the secret thought that human doings are as good as the life and death of the Son of God. It cries, we will not have this man to save us. A self-righteous hope casts a slur upon the glory of God, since it is clear that if man could be saved by his own works, he would naturally have the honor of it. But if man be saved by the free grace of God alone, then God alone is glorified. Woe unto those who teach a doctrine which would pluck the crown royal from the head of our sovereign Lord and disgrace the throne of his glory. God help us to be clear of this rank offense against high heaven. I grow warm upon such a subject as this, for my indignation rises against that which does, does dishonor to my Lord and frustrates grace. This is a sin so gross that even the heathen cannot commit it. They have never heard of the grace of God, and therefore they cannot reject it. When they perish, it will be for far lighter doom than those who have been told that God is gracious and ready to pardon, and yet turn on their heel and wickedly boast of innocence and pretend to be clean in the sight of God. This is a sin which devils cannot commit. With all the obstinacy of the devil's rebellion, they can never reach to this. They have never heard. They have never had the sweet notes of free grace and dying love preached to them, and therefore they have never refused the heavenly invitation. What has never been presented to their acceptance cannot be the object of their rejection. Thus then, my hearer, if you should fall into this deep ditch, you will sink lower than the heathen, lower than Sodom and Gomorrah, and lower than the devil himself. Wake up, I pray, and do not dare to frustrate the grace of God. The second great crime which self-justification commits is making Christ to be dead in vain. This is plain enough. If salvation can be by works of the law, why did our Lord Jesus die to save us? O oh, thou bleeding Lamb of God, your incarnation is a marvel, but your death on the accursed tree is such a miracle of mercy as fills all heaven with astonishment. Will any dare to say that by thy death, O incarnate God, was an unnecessary thing, a wanton waste of suffering? Do they dare think that you are a generous but unwise enthusiast whose death was needless? Can there be any who think your cross a vain thing? Yes, thousands virtually do this. And in fact, all do. All do so who make, who make and teach that men might have been saved in some other way or may now be saved by their own willing and doing. They who say that the death of Christ goes only part of the way, but that man must do something in order to merit eternal life, these, I see, say, make this death of Christ to be only partially effective, and, in yet clearer terms, ineffectual in and of itself. If it be even hinted that the blood of Jesus is not price enough till man adds his own silver or his own gold, then his blood is not our redemption at all, and Christ is no redeemer. If it be taught that our Lord's bearing of sin for us did not make a perfect atonement, 
and that it is ineffectual till we either do or suffer something to complete it, then in a supplemental work lies the real virtue, and Christ's work in itself is insufficient. His death cry of, it is finished, must have been all a mistake if it is still not finished. And if a believer in Christ is not completely saved by what Christ has done, but must do something himself to complete it, then salvation was not finished. And the Savior's work remains imperfect till we, poor sinners, lend a hand to make up for his deficiency. What blasphemy lies in such a supposition? Christ on Calvary made a needless and useless offering of himself, if any man among you can be saved by works of the law. This spirit also rejects the covenant which was sealed with Christ's death. For if we can be saved by the old covenant of works, then the new covenant was not required. In God's wisdom, the new covenant was brought in because the first had grown old and was void because of transgression. But if it not be void, then the new covenant is an idle innovation, and the sacrifice of Jesus ratified a foolish transaction. I loathe the words while I pronounce them. No one was ever saved under the covenant of works, nor ever will be, and the new covenant is introduced for that reason. But if there be salvation by the first, then what need was there of the second? Self-righteousness, as far as it can, disannuls the covenant, breaks its seal, and does despite the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the substance and the certificate and the seal of that covenant." If you hold that a man can be saved by his own good works, you pour contempt upon the testament of love which the death of Jesus has put in forth. For there is no need to receive a legacy of love, that which can be earned by a wage of work. O sirs, this is a sin against each, each person of the sacred trinity. It is a sin against the Father. How could he be wise and good, and yet give his only son to die on yonder tree in anguish, if man's salvation could be wrought by some other means? It is a sin against the Son of God. You dare to say that our redemption price could have been paid somehow else, and that therefore his death was not absolutely needful for the redemption of the world, or if needful, yet not ineffectual, not effectual, for it requires something to be added to it before it can effect its purpose." It is a sin against the Holy Ghost, and beware how you sin against him, for such sins are fatal. The Holy Ghost bears witness to the glorious perfection and unconquerable power of the Redeemer's work, and woe to those who reject that witness. He has come into the world on purpose that he may convince man of sin, of not believing in Jesus Christ, and therefore, if we think that we can be saved apart from Christ, we offend the Spirit of his grace. The doctrine of salvation by works is sin against all the fallen sons of Adam. For if men cannot be saved except by their own works, what hope is left for any sinner? You shut the gates of mercy on mankind. You condemn the guilty to die without possibility of remission. You deny all hope of welcome to the returning prodigal, all prospect of paradise to the dying thief. If heaven be by works, thousands of us will never see its gates. I know that I never shall. You fine fellows may rejoice in your prospects, but what is to become of us? You ruin us all with this boastful scheme. And that is not all. It is a sin against the saints, for none of them have any hope except in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remove the doctrine of the atoning blood, and you have taken all away. Our foundation is gone. If you say that you offend the whole gen if you say that you offend the whole generation of godly men. I go further. Workmongering is a sin against the believers who have died before us. The doctrine of salvation by works would silence the hallelujahs of heaven. <clears throat> Hush you choirs in heaven. What meaning is there in your song you are chanting? Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. But why sing ye so? If salvation be by works, your hymns of praise are empty flatteries. You ought to sing, Unto ourselves who kept our garments clean, and unto us be glory forever and ever. Or at least, unto ourselves whose acts made the Redeemer's works effectual be all share of praise. But a self-glorifying note was never heard in heaven, and therefore we feel sure that the doctrine of self-justification is not of God. I charge you, 
renounce it as the foe of God and man. This proud system is a sin of deepest dye against the well-beloved. I cannot endure to think of the insult which it puts on our dying Lord. If you have made Christ to live in vain, that is bad enough. But to represent him as having died in vain, what shall be said of this? That Christ came to earth for nothing is a statement most horrible, but that, it, that he became obedient to the death on the cross without the result is profanity at its worst. I will say no more concerning the nature of these sins, but in the second place to proceed to that solemn fact that these two great crimes are committed by many people. I am afraid they are committed by some who hear me this day. Let everyone search himself and see if these accursed things be not hidden in his heart. And if they be, let him cry to God for deliverance from them. Assuredly, these crimes are chargeable on those who trifle with the gospel. Here is the greatest discovery that was ever made, the most wonderful piece of knowledge that was ever revealed, and yet you do not think it worth a thought. You come now and then to hear a sermon, but you hear without heart. You read the scriptures occasionally, but you do not search them as for hid treasure. It is not your first object in life. Is it not your first object in life to be thoroughly, to thoroughly understand and heartily receive the gospel which God has proclaimed? This ought to be the case. What, my friend, does your indifference say that the grace of God is of no great value in your estimation? You do not think it worth the trouble of prayer, of Bible reading, and attention. The death of Christ is nothing to you. A very beautiful fact, no doubt. You know the story well, but you do not care enough about it to wish to be a partaker in its benefits. His blood may have the power to cleanse from sin, but you do not want remission. His death may be the life of men, but you do not long, but you do not long to live by him. To be saved by the atoning blood does not strike you as being half so important as to carry on your business at a profit and acquire a fortune for your family. By thus trifling with the precious things you do, as far as you can, frustrate the grace of God and make Christ to die in vain. Another set of people who do this are those who have no sense of guilt. Perhaps they are naturally friendly, civil, honest, and generous people, and they think that these natural virtues are all that is needed. We have many such in whom there is much that is lovely, but the one thing needful is lacking. They are not conscious that they ever did anything very wrong. They think themselves certainly as good as others, and in some respects rather better. It is highly probable that you are as good as others, and even better than others. But still you do not see, my dear friend, if I am addressing any one person such here, that if you are so good that you are to be saved by your goodness, you put the grace of God out of court and make it in vain. The whole, the whole, the healthy, have no need of a physician. Only the sick require his skill. And therefore, it was needless that Christ should die for such good people as you. Because you, in your own opinion, had done nothing worthy of death. You claim that you have done nothing very bad. And yet there is one thing in which you have grievously transgressed. And I beg you not to be angry when I charge you with it. You are very bad, because you are so proud as to think yourself righteous. Though God hath said that there is none righteous, no, not one. You tell your God that he is a liar. His word accuses you, and his law condemns you, but you will not believe him. And you actually boast of having a righteousness of your own. This is high presumption, an arrogant pride, and may the Lord purge you from it. Will you lay this to heart and remember that if you have never been guilty of anything else, this sin is enough to make you mourn before the Lord forever. You have, as far as you could, by your proud opinion of yourself, made void the grace of God and declared that Christ died in vain. Hide your face for shame and entreat for mercy for this glaring offense. Another sort of people may imagine that they shall escape but we must now come home to them. Those who despair will often cry, I know I cannot be saved except by grace, for I am such a great sinner. But alas, I am too great a sinner to be saved at all. I am too black for Christ to wash out my sins. Ah, my dear friend, 
Though you know it not, you are making void the grace of God by denying its power and limiting its might. You doubt the efficacy of the Redeemer's blood and the power of the Father's grace. What? The grace of God is not able to save? Is not the Father of our Lord Jesus able to forgive sin? We joyfully sing, Who is, pardoning, who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who hath grace so rich and free? And you say he cannot forgive you? And this is in the teeth of his many promises of mercy. He says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto man. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. You say that this is not true? Thus you frustrate the grace of God, and you make out that Christ died in vain, at least for you. For you say that he cannot cleanse you. Oh, say not so. Let not thine unbelief give lie to God. Oh, believe that he is able to save even thee, and freely, at this very moment, to put all thy sin away, and to accept thee in Christ Jesus. Beware of this dejection, for if you don't trust him, you will make void his grace. I'm speaking for myself now. This is a, a, a somewhat lengthy sermon, a little longer than I sometimes preach. And I'm, I'm feared that some of you might be getting just a little tired as we're moving into the supper hour. So could I encourage you to just pay special attention to this next passage. We're nearing the end of the sermon, and we're about to hear uh, what many people will say is one of the greatest preachers of all time preach the gospel to you. So can I have your attention for just a few more minutes? I'd be most grateful. And many think I commit this sin. And many, I think, commit this sin who have a distorted understanding of the gospel. I mean this. When we preach the gospel, we have only to say, Sinners, you are guilty. You never can be anything else but guilty in and of yourselves. If that sin of yours is to be pardoned, it must be through an act of sovereign grace and not because of anything in you or that can be done by you. Grace must be given to you because Jesus died and for no other reason. And the way by which you can have that grace is simply by trusting Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, you shall obtain full forgiveness. This is pure gospel. If the man turns round and inquires, how do I have the right to believe in Christ? If I tell him he is warranted to believe in Christ because he feels a law work within him, or because he has holy desires, I have made a mess of the gospel. I have put something of man into the question and marred the glory of grace. My answer is, my dear fellow sinner, hear this well. Your right to believe in Christ lies not in what you are or feel, but in God's command to you to believe and in God's promise, which is made to every creature under heaven, that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ shall be saved. This is our commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you are a creature, we preach that gospel to you. Trust Christ and you are saved. Not because you are a sensible sinner or a penitent sinner or anything else, but simply because God in his free grace, with no price paid to him on your part, but free and for nothing, freely forgives all your sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, I have not mangled the gospel. There it is, with nothing of the creature about it, but man's faith. And even that is the Holy Spirit's gift. Those who mingle their ifs and buts and insist upon it, you must do this or feel that before you can accept Christ, frustrate the grace of God in a measure and do damage to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And so... And so once more, to those who apostatize. Do I speak to any here who were once professors of religion? Who once used to offer prayer in the assembly? Who once walked as saints, but now have gone back, breaking the Sabbath, forsaking the house of God, and living in sin? You, my friends, say by your course of life, 
I had the grace of God, but I do not care about it. It is worth nothing. I have rejected it. I have given it up. I have made it void. I have gone back to the world. You do as good as say, I did once trust in Jesus Christ, but he is not worth trusting. You have denied him. You have sold your Lord and Master. I will not now go into the question as to whether you were ever sincere, though I believe you never were, but on your own showing, but on your own showing, such is the case. Take heed lest these two terrible crimes should rest upon you, that you frustrate the grace of God and make Christ to be dead in vain. On my third point, I shall carry with me the deep convictions and the joyful confidences of all true believers. It is this, that no true believer will be guilty of these crimes. In his very soul, he hates these infamous sins. First of all, no believer in Christ can bear to think of frustrating the grace of God or making it void. Come now, honest hearts, I speak to you. Do you trust in grace alone? Or do you in some measure rest in yourselves? Do you even in a small degree depend on your own feelings, your own faithfulness, your own repentance? I know you hate that very thought. You have not even the shadow of a hope, nor the semblance of a confidence in anything you ever were, ever can hope to be, or any semblance of a confidence... Oh, sorry. You have not even the shadow of a hope, nor the semblance of a confidence in anything you ever were, ever can be, or ever hope to be. You fling this away as a foul rag of germs, which you would hurl out of the universe if you could. I do testify that though I have preached the gospel with all my heart and glory in it, yet I cast my preachings away as dross and dung, if I think of them as the ground of my salvation." And though I have brought many souls to Christ, blessed be his name, I never dare for one moment to put the slightest confidence in that fact as to my own salvation. For I know that after having preached to others, may I may yet be cast away. I cannot rest in a successful ministry or an edified church, but I rest alone in my Redeemer. What I say to myself, I know that each one of you will say for himself, your offerings, your prayers, your tears, your suffering persecution, your gifts to the church, your earnest work in the Sunday school or elsewhere, did you ever think of putting these side by side with the blood of Christ as your hope? No, you never dreamed of it. I am sure you never did, and the mention of it is utterly loathsome to you. It is, is it not? Grace, grace, grace is your sole hope. Moreover, you have not only renounced all confidence in works, but you renounce it this day more heartily than you ever did. The older you are, the more holy you become, the less do you think of trusting in yourself. And the more we grow in grace, the more we grow in love with grace. The more we search into our hearts, the more we know of the holy law of God, the deeper our sense of unworthiness, and consequently our high, the higher is our delight in rich, free, unmerited mercy the free gift of the royal heart of God. Tell me, does not your heart leap within you when you hear the doctrines of grace? I know there are some who never felt themselves to be sinners, who shift about as if they were sitting on thorns when I am preaching grace and nothing but grace. But is it not so with you who are resting in Christ? Oh no, you say. Ring that bell again, sir. Ring that bell again. There is no music like it. Touch that string. It is our favorite note. When you get down in spirits and depressed, what sort of book do you like to read? Is it not a book about the grace of God? What do you turn to in Scripture? Do you not turn to the promises made to the guilty, the ungodly, the sinner? And do you not find that only in the grace of God and only at the foot of the cross is there any rest for you? I know it is so. Then you can rise up and say with Paul, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Some may, if they like, but God forbid that I should ever make it void, for it is all my salvation and all my desire. The true believer is also free from the second crime. He does not make Christ to be dead in vain. No, 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 he trusts in the death of Christ. He puts his, his soul and entire reliance on the great substitute who loved and lived and died for him. 
He does not dare to associate with the bleeding sacrifice his poor, ble- his poor bleeding heart or his prayers or his sanctification or anything else. None but Christ, none but Christ is his soul's cry. He detests every proposal to mix any, anything of ceremony or legal action with the finished work of Jesus Christ. The longer we live, I trust, dear brethren, the more we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are struck with admiration at the wisdom of the way in which the substitute was introduced. That God might, that God might strike the death blow to sin and yet spare the sinner. We are lost in admiration at the matchless love of God, that he spared not his own son. We are filled with reverent adoration at the love of Christ, that when he knew the price of pardon was his blood, his pity never withdrew. What is, war, what is more, we not only joy in Christ, but we feel an increasing oneness with him. We did not know it at first, but we know it now, that we were crucified with him, we were buried with him, and that we rose again with him. We are not going to have Moses for a ruler and Aaron for a priest, for Jesus is both king and priest to us. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and we are complete in him and nothing can be tolerated as an aid to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are one with him, and being one with him, we realize more every day that he did not die in vain. His death has brought us real life. His death has already set us free from the bondage of sin, and has even now brought us deliverance from the fear of eternal wrath. His death has brought us eternal life, has brought us sonship, and all the blessings that go with it, which the fatherhood of God takes care to bestow. The death of Christ has shut the gates of hell for us and opened the gates of heaven. The death of Christ has wrought for us mercies, not imaginary, but real and true, which is this very day, which this very day we do enjoy. And so we are in no danger of thinking that Christ died in vain. It is our joy to behold it is, it is our joy to hold two great principles, which I leave with you, hoping that you will suck the marrow and fatness out of them. These are the two principles. The grace of God cannot be frustrated, and Jesus Christ did not die in vain. These two principles, which I think lie at the bottom of all sound doctrine, the grace of God cannot be frustrated after all. Its eternal purpose will be fulfilled. Its sacrifice and seal shall be effectual. The chosen ones of grace shall be brought to glory. There shall be no failures as to God's plan in any point, whatever. At the last, when it all shall be summed up, it shall be seen that the grace that grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life, and the top stone shall be brought out with shoutings of grace, grace unto it, and grace and as grace cannot be frustrated, so Christ did not die in vain. Some seem to think that there were purposes in Christ's heart which will never be accomplished. We have not learned Christ so. We have died. What he died to do shall be done. Those he brought, he will have. Those he redeemed shall be free. There shall be no failure of reward for Christ's wondrous work. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. On these two principles, I throw back my soul to rest, believing in his grace, that grace shall never fail me. My grace is sufficient for thee, saith the Lord, and so it shall be. Believing in Jesus Christ, his death must save me. It cannot be, O Calvary, that thou should fail. O Gethsemane, that thy bloody sweat should be in vain. Through divine grace, resting in our Savior's precious blood, we must be saved. Joy, joy and rejoice with me and go your way and tell this good news to others. And God bless you in doing so. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'm going to invite our pianist forward. We'll have a closing song. And if you would remain seated, at the close of that song, we'll stand for the benediction.
Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.